Hello, it's Amanda Bullock, Senior Artistic Director at Literary Arts and your co-host of The Archive Project. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people just like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all of our programming possible, give today at literary-arts.org slash donate. Here's the show. Welcome to The Archive Project. I'm your host this week, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This week, we explore storytelling and the intersections between literature and music with our friends at the Oregon Symphony and 45th Parallel. First, we have a conversation led by Oregon Symphony Creative Chair Gabriel Kahane. As part of the 2023 Portland Book Festival, Kahane spoke to one of his frequent collaborators, the poet Matthew Zapruder. Their conversation centers on Zapruder's new memoir, Story of a Poem, a beautiful book that is, indeed, the story of writing a poem, but it's also a very personal exploration of Zapruder's reactions to his son's diagnosis with autism and his evolution as a son, husband, and father against the backdrop of life in the Anthropocene. We also have a conversation between the New Yorker critic and author of The Rest is Noise, Alex Ross, with musicians Ron Blessinger, Sergio Carreno, Bora Yoon, James Shields, and Lisa Lipton of the group 45th Parallel. They explore a fascinating range of subjects, including the impact of language, such as quote-unquote classical, and the freedoms and restrictions of genre which I think maps to really any other art form, but of course, I think mostly about books and how genre labels can both open things up for readers, but close people off as well. They can be both inviting and intimidating, both with music and with reading. Similarly, how the baggage of the canon can be a barrier for some people, but what is hard to remember but ultimately important about any art is your personal response, which doesn't mean you have to know anything about it at all. I love that, and I try to remember it myself when I'm venturing into new-to-me genres. One thing in particular that Alex Ross says stands out to me as applicable to all art, including, of course, literature. He says that music is indefinite in its meaning, which means particularly with classical music, you can't definitively say this song is about this thing. The meaning is rooted both in the time that the piece was created, but also when it's heard. Or read. This means that art is a unique form of time travel, which is very cool. So let's start by traveling back to November 5th, when Gabriel Kahane and Matthew Zapruder sat down to chat at the 1905 in Portland, Oregon. We're here in part to celebrate the publication of Matthew's extraordinary memoir, Story of a Poem. Matthew is the author of several collections of poetry, Two prose books, including the aforementioned story of a poem. Uh, He teaches at St. Mary's College of California in the creative writing program. He's an editor at Wave Books. He was the guest editor of Best American Poetry 2022, for a while edited poetry for the New York Times Magazine. Just generally lovely dude. I'm not a fan of talking about one's accolades. I like to let the language speak for itself. Matthew's book is a sort of braided narrative. I'm going to let him... Uh, speak about that, and, and we're going we're gonna to focus on certain aspects of the book. But before we go any further, Matthew, I'm wondering, um, first of all, thanks so much for being here. Would you talk just a bit about what this book is? This was about actually being in this book five years ago, almost to the day, early, in early November uh, 2018. And I don't know if you remember, there was a lot going on then, and uh, politically, and also in the Bay Area where I live, it was the first really terrible fire season so we were kind of shocked, uh, environmentally shocked, and wearing ma- already wearing masks presciently. Yeah, so I started this daily writing project and was just kind of, I had this idea about writing a poem, taking a very long time to write a poem. Uh, I often write quickly on a daily basis, um, uh, but I thought, what would it be like to write a poem and write about writing a poem and write about the creative process and see what I could kind of generate out of that. And that and many other things came out of that activity of writing every day for many, many, many months, which formed the basis of this book, 
which kind of traces the arc of writing a poem. It also talks about um, my parenting of a neurodivergent child and other matters that were going on. And yeah, I think that sets it. Does that yeah. set it up pretty much? Or Absolutely. Let's... Do you want to yeah. just read from the beginning yeah, of the I'll book? Yeah, I'll just read a little bit from the beginning um, of the book. This chapter, the first chapter in the book is called I Woke Up in California, First Draft. It's 5 a.m. and the busy street is quiet. Outside the window, the leaves of the trees are black. Wires slice through the darkness, making dark shapes. The sky gradually becomes visible. I can feel Sarah and Simon still asleep in the rooms behind me. For a moment, I can almost imagine I'm at the prow of a ship, sitting still as the world rotates into unhelpful light. A little tremor shakes the desk, and I feel a flash of panic, but it's not an earthquake, just a lone truck passing. Last night, as I was putting him to bed, I told him that something would happen in two sleeps. It's something I've heard other parents say, and I found it coming out of my mouth. I didn't know if he'd heard me, lost as he so often was in singing one of his favorite songs. Often he will seem not to hear, and then a few hours or days later will repeat what was said, or answer a question asked minutes or even hours ago. Sometimes months later, he will repeat something I said to him, laughing. It's as if he and I are in an endless conversation, the pace of which is slower than I could ever have imagined. All summer, I had been writing a poem every morning and emailing it to Matt. He would send me a new poem back too. I told myself and believed that these were just practice for what would eventually be the real writing, a neat trick, impossible to deliberately replicate. I never had a plan or any idea where to begin. I would sometimes choose a phrase that seemed to glow with at least a little potential. This autumn morning, I remember Matt once showed me how you can start a poem by putting one or two lines in the middle of the page and then writing out from them, alternating a line before and then one after. He said this method came to him in a dream. Two sleeps I type in the middle of the page, then roll the platen up one line to type above it, something that could make sense as a line before, then back down to type something that could go after. In the redwoods, two sleeps watch over. Watch over what? I don't know. It's just a beginning, but as Bob Haas says, you can't revise nothing. Not until nothing becomes a few words. When you have no ideas or too many, it's best to find a few words that seem to have potential, for now inexplicable. The painter Degas once said to his friend Mallarmé, I want to write poems, but I have too many ideas. Mallarmé replied, Poems, my dear Degas, are not made of ideas, but of words. <laughs> Poetry makes nothing happen, W.H. Auden wrote, which doesn't mean it does nothing. It makes nothing happen. It activates the silence. You begin, and now there's something to listen to. Yeah. So, that's the beginning. Thank you. I will just, as a disclaimer, say I, I adore this book. I have, I've become its number one proselytizer. And as... Matthew alluded to, it's a sort of braided narrative that, that is at once a, a parenting memoir. It is a book that is about the process of writing a single poem. And then more broadly, it's, I think, about the limits of language, the relationship between language and ideas, and, and where, that, where they connect and where they, where they come apart. For the purposes of this conversation, and, and because Matthew and I have this long-standing collaborative relationship, I want to focus first on the beautiful and I think deeply wise ways in which you, you talk about what it is to be an artist open, open to process, open to the stochastic, open to truth, allowing the scales to fall from our eyes and, and to discover things that we wouldn't discover otherwise. And as a, as a place to begin, I'm wondering if you could read on, on page 41 of this beautiful passage about music and truth, since we are sort of doing a a music and poetry collab. I'm wondering if you could could read that um, that section. Sure. I, I I'll, so I'll say just to set it up a little bit. One of the odd things that happened when I was writing. I also should say that um, at this time when I started writing this book, I'd also just uh, gotten sober. So um, and I don't know if any of you've had this experience, but um, one thing that ha happened to me as I was writing is I was having a lot of very intense memories, uh, like remembering things uh, in a way that I didn't wasn't used to. Um, and so 
the book kind of also turned into a, a memoir of kind of like my own growth as a poet or how I started to get to be a poet, which was a very um, surprising thing to me. I you, just to clarify, that. you're saying that in, in your sobriety, you were having these Yeah, I would just remember things from the past in a, with a clarity that mm -hmm. wasn't, wasn't usual for me. And so like as I was, it could have also been a consequence of doing the writing, but I just noticed um, I was remembering things very clearly. So the book ends up being also kind of tracing my own, how I got here as a writer, yeah. and which was, you know, not, I wasn't born into writing poetry. It wasn't something that I would have ever thought would happen to me in my life when I was younger. So it was kind of interesting to think about that too. And so that's sort of, I talk about that a bit in this passage I'm about to read. So, so I, I start off with a quote from Richard Hugo, who was, a, who was a famous poet from the Pacific Northwest, a wonderful poet. Richard Hugo writes, when you start to write, you carry to the page one of two attitudes, though you may not be aware of it. One is that all music must conform to truth. The other, that all truth must conform to music. If you believe the first, you are making your job very difficult. <laughs> when I first started to write poems, I carried both attitudes with me. I believed on the one hand that music must conform to truth. You start with what you want to say and use music to convey it in the most powerful way. This sounds, when I think of it, dangerously like advertising or propaganda. At the same time, I was looking to write not in order to convey any message, but to search for it. To search for and submit to a different kind of music, a deeper order or significance, an intimated truth that could not otherwise be felt. And I believed this deeper order could only be found through intuition. I had to completely trust and defer to it. This presumably would lead to deeper poetic knowledge. This unresolved contradiction within me made things, as Hugo points out, very difficult. Mm -hmm. For hours I would sit scratching my head, writing down a few words and then erasing them. Was I supposed to be saying something I already knew in the most beautiful possible way? Or trying to follow music, whatever that was, to find out what I did not know I believed? And if the latter, how was I supposed to write without controlling what I wrote? Wouldn't that lead to complete gibberish? I was working at cross purposes. The poems I wrote to express what I already knew felt dead on the page. I was coming up with decorated language to say what could be more directly said. But I didn't know what else to do, how to create the mystery and strangeness in the poems that I loved. The poems I read by others and loved the most seemed so clear, but full of something that was somehow outside the writer as if the poet were channeling something. And then this one more paragraph. I have come to believe that writing is an endless, shifting negotiation between intention and discovery, ideas brought to the page and ones uncovered in the process of writing itself, music and truth. Sometimes I know what I want to say. Almost always, I can only really discover what I think and believe through the process of writing the poem. I have to let myself be okay with both states and to shift freely between them. I have to let myself make mistakes, be foolish and wrong, to write things down that make no sense, but seem beautiful or funny or weird, and then use my intuition to guide me to what feels truthful to me. I'm wondering if you can talk more generally about your relationship to music. I think very often when we read about poetry, um, music is invoked, as in the Richard Hugo quote. Um, but you have a, a real relationship to music in, in one of one of the poems uh, that I have set, you, you write, uh, we drew the names of our bands in black Sharpies we stole from the office of someone's dad. <laughs> and I just, true. Can, you, can you walk us just briefly through the, the musical biography of Matthew Zapruder? <laughs> um, I started playing music when I was really young. Uh, my dad taught me to play guitar when I was like five or six years old. He taught me to fit this finger pick, like, he was a big Bob Dylan fan, and so he taught me that. You learned to finger pick when you were five? Yeah, like five or six. Yeah, there's like a recording of me doing that, yeah. It's crazy. Never advanced to me on that point. It was like <laughs> plateaued at the age of six. But uh, yeah, so I played music my whole life, and obviously love, like so many of us love music. I would not say that I'm like in any way a professional musician, but I'm somebody who's made music. And so for me, music has a kind of literal meaning when I talk about it, but also there is this sort of mushy, figurative thing that people mean that's something you know a little different but you know? before we get to the mushy figurative i'm wondering can you talk at all about how your experience of playing in bands or your relationship to music as a listener informs uh, in a sort of technical way how it informs your writing when you're getting to the sort of the final stages of a poem well you can tell me if you think this is right but and, and i was talking about this a bit yesterday in a panel i was on with uh jane hirschfeld and major jackson but 
so much of writing and the, so much of what we don't talk about in writing is it, it's somatic quality. Um, there's a physicality to writing, uh, a knowing when things feel right that's bodily. Mm. And I think that I probably was more disposed to accepting that because of my, the, the, all, the time, all the music playing I've done. And that knowledge also feeling very physical to me. You know, when you're playing music with other people or you're writing a song or you're, you don't, you don't intellectualize why it's feel right or wrong. You just know it feels right in your, I think in your body. And so I don't know, is that how you feel when you're writing too? Or is it, is it somatic to you like in that way or? Well, I guess in the context of this conversation, you know, one of, one of the things that I do a lot when I'm working with text, either found text or text that doesn't have an obvious, um, rhythmic structure is I, I print out the text and then in the, the right hand part of the page I, I write out rhythms uh, that come out of the text and I try to sort of discover um, an internal logic to the text mm. and one of the things that I've found time and again in, in working with your poems is that there, there's often this, this really beautiful and kind of sneaky unpredictable slant rhyme that nevertheless gives the poems this really, really deep, ineluctable architecture. And so I guess the sort of, to push on it a little bit further, I'm wondering, is that something that you ever massage? Obviously some of that comes out of just discovery, right? Um, the, again, the music of the language, but do you ever find, find those patterns and then um, consciously build further around them no um I, but i do do that and i think it's just um instinctive to me i say it over and over again i say it in my head and in my body over and over again and i just know when there's a part that doesn't feel right it's just it's just it's just awkward to me it just doesn't sound right and i that's probably true for a lot of poets you know i would say the majority of them and so i don't do that kind of diagramming you're talking about yeah. with the piece but I'm definitely, it's not done until, you know, that those, those hitches, those moments are, are, are not there anymore. But usually what's sort of interesting about this is that those, those moments that don't feel right in my body are moments when I'm not telling the truth yet. Mm. It's not, and I don't mean by telling the truth like being accurate, you know, but, like, but, but I mean, but I'm not, I haven't gotten to what I need to say yet, something, you know, a vague way of putting it. And so it's not just about sound. It's about, it's about, you know, what's the, what, what's the right thing to say? And I guess I su sort of have a quasi-religious view on that, which is I think that there is a, there is a place I'm trying to get to in the poem. Yeah. And if, I don't, if I'm not there yet, it's going to feel wrong to me in my body. It's going to sound wrong. It's gonna, it's, I, I often say to my students, when I, you know, I teach poetry workshops, and when they read a poem out loud, they'll stumble over a certain part. And I'm like, That's, it's not an accident. You can't say that. And a lot, you guys can read it again, and they stumble over the same part again. And it's because it's just not worked out. It's like a king. It's just not worked out yet. You know? In in the, the early part of the book, you 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 sort of belittle, and, and including the passage that you you read, you belittle your younger self for trying to sort of aestheticize things that you already knew, which is to say, writing poems about something, as opposed to writing from a place of discovery or from openness to discovery. But then I think later in the book, you kind of waffle, and you and it, I think you you argue that sometimes you actually do start with an idea and I'm wondering you know you you and I in in conversation bless you uh, over the last uh, couple of months we've talked about how in some ways this book feels increasingly distant to you because you wrote it a while ago and I'm wondering on that particular topic of the this sort of uh, germinating impulse for poems of having an, an idea of like I want to write not not even just like I want to write a poem about X, but even just like a structural or a formal idea. Where where did where does sort of like formal discovery within your formal imagination fit into the sort of map of uh, I have an idea to write a poem. I don't necessarily know what the poem is about, but I you know I know that I want to do this thing structurally that I've never done before. As opposed to the the sort of technique of I'm really just going to follow the language, and I'm going to mm. you know move the platen up and down from line to line. I Does think, that question make sense? I feel yeah. Like I, I think basically what I so unsurprisingly as a younger writer, like I took a pretty extreme position, maybe out of desperation to reject something that I think was kind of 
keeping me, holding me back. So I took a pretty extreme position about not knowing what the poem was about or not, or not poems even almost sort of like not being about anything right. in particular, which I think was a good thing. To, I think young artists should be extreme. I think they should be dramatic. I think they should take extreme positions. Um, so, you know, I think I was, I, I kind of, it was almost like I need to eradicate this like, you know, like a scholarly or, you know, literature professor, proto-literature professor type training inside myself. Then I think over time I've just gotten more interested in the dynamic, the shifting dynamic between knowing where you want to go and then letting go of it and knowing, sort of shifting back and forth. Um, I am sometimes interested in the idea of just like kind of coming up with an idea and just sort of plowing ahead through it. As far as the form goes, I think again, it's like, it's more like a, uh, like I'll settle on a form and then I'll reject it and I'll settle and I'll reject it. So for a while I like, I like to be serially convinced is what mm. I say, I guess. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. But without allowing yourself to become convinced, it's stages of the process. I mean, you're, you're lost. I mean, if you're always undermining any certainty in what you're doing, it becomes you know, impossible yeah. to do anything. So. As I mentioned earlier, we're focusing for the purposes of this conversation on, on really sort of one thread of this beautiful book that contains multitudes. But there is one, one aspect about your relationship to your son. I'm wondering if you would read um, the section where you talk about the word autism, and then to, to talk a little bit about how that sort of flowers so that, out yeah, is that on, on page, page 70. 70 yeah. So I'm talking about in this part about how um, noticing what that word does to people and also its, its presence in my own work since I write about my kid at times and myself at times and why it is that I don't, that I sort of resist using that particular term while also not, you know, wanting to in any way like allied neurodivergence or my own relationship to it, I guess. So that's what. So the word autism causes a lot of uninformed fear. When I heard that word, I too was deathly afraid. I thought I knew what it meant. I'd seen all those movies. I suddenly saw my son in a certain way, the present and future closed down. It shames me now to think how before I met my son, I walked through the world. That word erased difference, variation, and possibility. My so-called knowledge shadowed the world. I had to unlearn that word. Yeah, that in particular, the notion that, that words can erase difference is something that I think is so beautiful and necessary, particularly in this moment where we're talking in the midst of this horrific war in Gaza. And there is a lot of language that seems to shut down the possibility of difference. And I know, again, from conversations that, that we've had, that you've sort of extrapolated from, from that discovery around the word autism to sort of a broader implication with language that can sort of counterintuitively shut down the possibility of discovery. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? It's a big subject. I mean, I, I said before uh, we started talking, um, you know, got on stage and started talking, I mentioned that I had actually written more explicitly about that very issue in this book, and then it just felt a little bit um, too um, kind of over-explainy. I felt that the reader would be able to make their own connections with that. But yeah, I think that, you know, because of the complexity of the world and just the, the, the degree of emotionality of our own reactions to really horrible, um, challenging things. We have a tendency to sort of sum things up in phrases, or in, which then become like these tokens, NFTs, if you will, mm -hmm. tokens uh, to, to like sort of pass around and they become unexamined. I mean, and, and I think that I've noticed that happening a lot um, recently um, in the recent, this recent conflict. I mean, people just uh, using big chunks of language or small chunks of language for that matter that uh, that, that just don't, if you, if you were to start to really unpack them, or I don't like that metaphor, so if you were to start to actually examine the assumptions that went into them, uh, you'd have a much more productive conversation, and one that would probably lead to more mutual understanding and compassion and love, which we're obviously sorely lacking in this moment. So I think social media... Um, I know you're probably all huge fans of social media. I know I am, but like, but uh, but it's designed to operate in that way. It is actually engineered to 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 uh, encourage us to think in that way and 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 commit violences against each other, which then generate more more clicks or more more energy around these things. So yeah, I think we all have like a, I think I have a duty to basically resist that. 
Um, so yeah, I don't want I don't want to participate in that economy of attention. I applaud you for that. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's not exactly a brave stance, but but I mean yeah, I, I mean I you know I just I just think it's like it's very painfully obvious right now that that is a, that's a huge part of what's going on here in our in our culture. You know, I'm not talking about you know the causes of this conflict or something different. I just mean our communities, you know, which I seem riven by 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 um, arguments that are essentially linguistic. Um, and it's it's very disturbing, and you just want to kind of just slow everybody down and say, what do you really mean by that? Mm, yeah. Well, I think one of one of the reasons that I keep coming back to your poems, and I, at this point, I've probably set I don't know seven or eight. I've I've set more of your poetry than poetry by anyone else by a factor of seven or eight. Seven or eight. <laughs> but generally speaking, it's all super singable, and. You know, there's a long tradition in music, in, in art song, going back to the 19th century, of people like Schubert and Schumann deliberately setting second-rate poetry and kind of elevating it. Um, and this is you know, something that I think about a lot with respect to adaptation is does, and, and we could be talking about film, we could be talking about theater, dance, music, whatever, um, that the first question that I think one has to ask is, can you transcend what has already been achieved uh, in, you know, with, the, with the original form? And I think very often artists would save themselves many years of, of labor and pain if they asked that question before embarking on misguided adaptations. What's, what I find unusual in your work is that, um, well, I guess I don't feel like I'm elevating it. I think I'm just offering a different, a, a different version. It feels so complete. But something that that draws me to it is how singable it is. That your your diction is really sort of again. I said this earlier. It's it's at once plain spoken, um, but full of music and and full of lyricism. And that's something that that I often find um, can be tricky with poetry, whether it's old or contemporary. That it's just sort of like too fussy and fancy, and they're they're just like certain words you don't want to sing. Um, yeah. Well, I mean. And, I I think that I think that for me, probably probably the thing that is um, most connects me to writing poems is that I just love the way all words sound. Mm. I I can't get over it. I'm just like into I'm into the material of it. I just love and simple words, scientific words, the Latinate um, uh, words of you know the English language, the the, the older, you know, Anglo-Saxon words, like everything, you know, cognate. And so I think I just like, uh, you know, I think I have a good ear, I guess. Yeah. And so, so you know, there's, there's different strengths that people bring to poems, and I think that just the sonic, you know, aspect of it is something that probably I'm just not satisfied till it is in some way singable, yeah. even though yeah. I didn't know. The, other, the thing that's strange about, you know, putting, it's, I, I, I find it, um, amazing that you can put poems to music because you know mu poems are designed to carry everything, yeah. and they're designed to operate against silence or in the con not against, but maybe in the context of silence. So to take something that's like built to to operate that way and to add additional musical information onto it is extremely um, uh, you know yeah uh, combustible situation. Well, it's and an act of hubris. Wrong. No, no, no. It just often goes wrong. It's like, it's like I, you know, you see, you, that's why I think that we all feel, when we hear certain pieces of music, they feel uh, that are poems set to music, they feel overdetermined to us mm. um, because it's just a surfeit of meaning. So I think that a, the ability to, of, your, of you to like find the places where there could be more information that, is, that works in dialogue with, and I also find that when, you, when you've put my poems to music, there's a kind of element of play that I really appreciate that I have sort of gesturing towards maybe that mm -hmm. like, like even when you read that poem for Val's poem, I think it's, it's maybe the song is funnier than the, just reading the poem and it's supposed to be a little bit funny, some mm. parts of it, you know? Um, so yeah, I think there, I yeah. think there is more information to add maybe in my yeah. poems than maybe some, some other people's poems. I, I think, for, yes, no. I think some, some of that that I try to draw out in, in your work and in all text, it comes from doing work in the theater and thinking about where, on the boards? Were you on the boards? <laughs> no. No, but think, thinking about um, the, uh, the, the sort of physics of humor and how jokes operate. Um, and I think, you know, the setting of Poem for Vows, one thing that I'm doing there, not that it's like laugh out loud funny, but the way that you're sort of 
parceling out information. Hello, beautiful, yeah. talented, dark semi-optimists of June. There are like five beats within that first line. And, and that's something that I often find yeah. is sort of um, murmuring under, under the surface of, of your, your language is the well, sense of play. Well, that is something you can do that I can't do, yes. right? You can, you can pace it out that way in a way that might add, like give people yeah. a, a few yeah. more instants to connect with it or whatever. Or like, yeah. I, I feel like this is actually a great place to maybe close. First of all, I just I want to thank, thank the 1905 yes. for having us. Um, as, as well as Portland Book Festival for, for including us. I'm wondering if you would read on pages 74 and 75. So the, this little passage starts out with a quote um, from the French poet Paul Valéry. Paul Valéry wrote, a fine line of poetry is a fruit plucked from the tree. But which tree? This leads to the curious point of trying to make the tree whose fruit would be this fruit. Finally, then, it is the fruit of two trees, one hidden, unknowable, which produced the fruit, the other, the work in which the fruit takes a more or less necessary place. That's Valerie. According to Wikipedia, to form a fruit, one tree sends the pollen out. It drifts until it finds the other. Some trees do self-pollinate, it's true, but those trees grow less fruit. Sometimes Wikipedia is as beautiful as any poem. This is a quote. The pollination process requires a carrier for the pollen, which can be animal, wind, or human intervention. You've been given the line, the, the image, the idea. Like a child or a new love, it is never what you expected. It wants you to change your life. You hear the line. It comes from somewhere. You've gathered or maybe fathered it. It comes to you or you to it. No one can tell you how it happens. Sometimes you write for a while, feeling nothing, until almost unnoticed, something starts with mysterious life to glow. You feel yourself resist its strangeness. What does it mean? Is that what I meant to say? What do you do with it then? You cannot turn away. Make somewhere for it to live and belong. It is your job to imagine and invent that tree on which the treasured fruit could happily thrive. The strange treasure of a line or image or symbol or word or thought or moment needs the poem so that it can be more than itself in isolation, so that it can be truly perceived. Try to remember, the whole point of writing the first draft is just to hear the music. And then once you hear the music, you look for what could contain it. Reverse engineering. Farewell, old tree. Hello, something else from which can hang the music you have found. Try to be quiet for once, to listen for something you love. Let it come to you. Then build a structure in which what you love, a line, an image, a word, can exist. A situation, a scene, a sonnet, a huzzle, an ode, an abandoned palace, a happy graveyard, a breeze, a ghost ship's wake, a map in winter, a rose factory, someone crossing the ocean in a fabulously unseaworthy craft, a marriage, a meal, a crucial childhood memory that never occurred, a radio being endlessly, impatiently tuned, so on and so on and so on, until the line can live there. You hear them, then the poem can begin. Thank you so much to all of you for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thanks again to the 1905. See you again soon. That was a conversation between poet Matthew Zapruder talking about his memoir, Story of a Poem, with his frequent collaborator, the musician Gabriel Kahane, creative chair of the Oregon Symphony. Up next, we have a conversation featuring New Yorker critic and author of The Rest is Noise, Alex Ross with a group of musicians from the group 45th Parallel. To kick us off, here's Interim Executive Director Ron Blessinger introducing the event. Okay, so I'll start things off with Alex's opening words from his book, Listen to This, which, not coincidentally, is also the way we're starting the concert. I hate classical music. Not the thing, but the name. It traps a tenaciously living art in a theme park of the past. It cancels out 
the possibility that music in the spirit of Beethoven could still be created today. It banishes into limbo the work of thousands of active composers who have to explain to otherwise well-informed people what it is they do for a living. The phrase is a masterpiece of negative publicity, a tour de force of anti-hype. I wish there was another name. I envy jazz people who speak simply of the music. Some jazz aficionados also call their art America's classical music, and I propose a trade. They can have classical. I'll take the music. So Alex, to paraphrase Winston Churchill, is this a case of classical music being the worst term for this art form except for all the other options? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, we're stuck with it. Uh, you know, I've protested against it and many other people uh, over the decades have have attempted to to somehow uh, move beyond this term. Um, but it's just the the term by which the music in question is is widely recognized. but but I, I do think it is it actually creates problems uh, for the art form itself uh, because it does, create the image of a music hopelessly stuck in in the past. Um, and you know that frankly is a pretty good description also of many <laughs> uh, classical music organizations, uh, this one very much accepted. And um, you know, it just it just points out the fundamental problem that we that we face, I think, which is this this drastic imbalance between the music of the past and the music of the present um, in uh, so-called classical music. It's a burden that that no other art form uh, has to cope with. You know, in literature, um, we have, of course, the great literature of the past, as Homer, Aeschylus, Shakespeare, and so on, and we also have, you know thousands of novels being written today. And I think there's there's a good balance uh, uh, between the two. Uh, the same thing in the visual arts. I mean, look at the contemporary art world, just absolute madness, you know, with the sort of prizes being commanded by uh, artists who are sometimes extremely, you know, avant-garde um, in, in their work and, and, and so on and so forth, uh, you know, in film, you know, the, the film of the present and the film of the past. Um, are, are in balance. Uh, whereas in, in classical music, um, we're just overshadowed, you know, by by the great composers of, of previous eras. And and this is not to not deny, of course, that, that they are great, um, but we could just have a much, much better balance um, between uh, the new and the old. And, and so I think this is just a, a struggle that's been going on generation after generation, going all the way back to the 19th century. This problem already existed in the 19th century. Uh, by the late 19th century, uh, orchestras in, in Europe uh, were playing predominantly uh, uh, composers, no longer living composers. Uh, this was the case in Leipzig and Paris and, and, and all these places. Uh, so the syndrome goes very far back. Tying into that, people have pronounced the death of classical music or have been uh, pro prophesying it for many, many years, for hundreds of years. If, what is the lay of the land now, and especially coming out of the cataclysmic event of the pandemic? I mean, where do you, what, what's working, what's not? You, you've been quoted as saying that some institutions, it's, it's evolution, some will survive and some won't. But what, what do you see that's working? What is the path forward? Well, I mean, it, it's felt fragile for so long. I mean, since I was a kid and I'm 55 now, people have been uh, worrying about the demise of classical music. You can go all the way back to the 1920s and 1930s and find people talking about the aging of the audience or the ossifying of the uh, institutions. Um, and so somehow, you know, all these uh, orchestras and, and opera houses, uh, you know, most of them are still around. You know, it's it's kind of remarkable <laughs> when you when you look at the the general uh, lay of the land and and actually think there is a considerable tenacity in this tradition and and people really still do love going to concerts uh, I think um, and and especially in these days when we're being overwhelmed by you know electronic data and and sort of information overload and social media and all our devices beeping all the time to go into this space where sound grows out of silence and and it's, it's you know, most of the time a sort of uh, uh, non-electronic uh, phenomenon. Uh, I think people seek it out and sort of take 
refuge uh, in it. Um, you know, the economics are are really troubling. I mean, when you have an institution like the Metropolitan Opera with, you know, $300 million a year budget, um, uh, you know, how much longer an organization like that can keep going on um, in, in that way, you know, on that scale um, is, is an open question. But there are many prophecies of, of doom which, which have not come true. I mean, sort of an irony for me as a music critic is that, you know, for, for several generations, music critics have been worrying about the demise of <laughs> classical music. And, and, you know, now, frankly, we are the ones <laughs> who are dying out. Uh, uh, you know, there's so few of us still remaining uh, writing about music. And, um, and yet the music itself uh, uh, goes on. So, yeah, I, ca I can't predict the future. I mean, it, it, everything could sort of turn out relatively okay, or there could be sort of a total catastrophe in, in coming years. I, I honestly have no idea. But I do believe that the sort of the, the smaller, more flexible organizations, those who can who can sort of move about and reach out to different audiences in different places, um, the, those are the ones that perhaps have the the healthiest future, whereas the bigger scale organizations are just they have fundamental uh, economic and social uh, challenges. Well, I want to ask Lisa this question because we're we're recording this in Mendelssohn's, a classical music pub in Portland, Oregon, and Lisa, more than anybody else I know, is showing the way, one way forward, and connecting to this kind of local culture and the idea of a classical music pub is just so novel and interesting. I'm wondering if you could talk about that a bit. Yeah, I think when I was in school, I first discovered, um, you know, that classical music wasn't as cool as I thought it was. <laughs> um, and I realized there that I was, I had been shielded in my, um, excitement in it and desire in it and I was really privileged to grow up where I grew up and just be in not just one orchestra as a kid but three um and have and be able to be in other things too um I was in jazz band um I did marching band although that one I'm not excited about <laughs> um and so I think I had this this realization that okay not everyone grew up with this concept and when you talk to people um, who maybe don't know a lot about classical music or they might know the name Mozart or they might know the name Beethoven. Um, and it usually means a series of things for them, right? And they're not instantly connected to it or have an emotional response in the same way that it brings up either a lot of baggage or a lot of awesome feelings <laughs> for a classical musician. And um, I had grappled with this a lot of um, I guess my growing up and my artistic life in Portland and how do I excite people that don't know anything about it? How do I invite people to participate, um, to feel like they don't need to know anything about something to enjoy it, that they don't need to have this entire um, history or education to experience something and just like it. Uh, and I thought, you know, I've been singing karaoke in bars forever, and I don't know half the things that people sing, but I love it. I love seeing people enjoy music. I love seeing them get really into whatever they're into and go to this place that's a community center. I think bars have replaced a lot of what the church probably was um, throughout ages and uh, maybe, a, you know, obviously a lot more secular. But uh, yeah, this concept really stuck with me. How do you invite people? How do you get people interested and engaged? Uh, and the bar seemed like the answer. And creating a bar as a specific place where, yes, chamber music is lauded, anticipated, um, programmed regularly, but also other things so that we're not so other, so that we're not so removed from these other types of music. Uh, and so we're going into almost our second year. It's pretty exciting. Um, and I love it. And it's fun and outrageous and crazy. Um, I don't know any place where I can just go and do a thing chamber music-wise as a soloist or with another person um, and have a community response in quite that same way as far as a venue. So... Alex, I want to thank you so much for being willing to join us, come to Portland for this event. Um, um, it's going to be a really unusual concert of just format-wise. You know, I, I remember the first time I read um, Rest is Noise, 
I kept thinking, and you did this actually with your blog, and, and you made it possible for people to read from the book and then also connect with recording recorded examples of what you're talking about. But I, I kept thinking, you know, as, as a concert producer, I, I was like, well, how could this work in a live concert format? And I'm really, really pleased with uh, what we've been able to, to collaborate with you on to create. Um, and I'm a big fan of context in music and your words provide the ultimate context for um, classical music uh, performance or really music performances. So we're really grateful to you for that and uh, really look forward to your um, return visit to Portland. Yeah, no, I'm very excited. I mean, I, of course, I'm most comfortable just sitting in the audience and uh, <laughs> it's strange to be up on uh, stage. Um, and, you know, I, I'm no great kind of live performer um it's just you know just simply in terms of uh, uh speaking but but i i do think that you know something a uh, sort of service that i've been able to provide as a critic is that sense of uh historical context uh just my own experience uh, having gone to thousands of concerts at this point i don't know over over more than 30 years um and yeah it's sort of giving people a sense of of First of all, this is happening. <laughs> this exists. Uh, here is a kind of frame in which you can uh, perhaps begin to understand it. Here's how it connects to kind of other phenomena from different periods of music history and also outside of classical music and in the wider cultural scene. And, and I think that's what sort of a lot of people, they just need an entrance point. You know, they don't need to have it all explained to them. And I don't have all the answers and I can't explain everything. Um, but, but just to provide an in. Um, just to sort of get them going. Try this. Try that. Listen to this, um, and then and then they go from there. I mean, I have a lot of friends, and I've just encountered people, um, uh, perfect strangers, who've told me that you know they knew nothing, and then you know maybe they read a piece I wrote about Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time. They listened to that piece, um, became more and more curious, and you know a couple of years down the line they are uh, full on Messiaen experts who travel around the world hearing mm -hmm. performances of Des Canyons Etoiles. I don't know, but um, <laughs> but it just it doesn't take much to sort of spark that interest. You know, as my interest was sparked um, as as a kid. Uh, reference points uh, context so yeah it would be great if we can do that um, in the live concert format and it reminds, well. reminds me of another um, uh, response or, or uh, one of the reasons I love Rust is Noise too is understanding how music in different eras can represent this a soundtrack of the psychology of an era and for me especially with 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 the second Vini school with a lot of you know that kind of tense music could you know, artists had to write music that corresponded to the, the time in which they lived. And so that context um, was, is, is really valuable. I think that's one of the great, um, brilliant um, things about that book is that it helps us understand, we can hear the anxiety of the age and the soundtrack of the composers that are writing that music. And I think you illustrate that brilliantly in that book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, music really can allow us to travel through space and, and through time in some really vivid, um, uncanny ways. You know, of course, music is rather indefinite in terms of its meanings. And so you just can't say this Shostakovich symphony was, you know, absolutely about the kind of, you know, political situation in the Soviet Union in 1937. Um, and yet, this is a work that people experienced in these very fraught times uh, as, as an extraordinarily powerful experience. And, and, and we can sort of relive that uh, to, to some degree. And it does really tell us something about the, the fabric of, of the world of the past in a way that perhaps reading a book or looking at a painting or even a photograph or a film you know, can't quite do. And I think just as important, it allows us to travel through space, experience other cultures, uh, experience what people are uh, feeling through music around the world right now. Um, and that is also exceedingly powerful. And it simply challenges our preset ideas and, and expands our consciousness. Well, I want to thank my friends, James, Lisa, Sergio, and Bora for joining me. Um, and Alex, of course, thank you for uh, this amazing conversation. 
Uh, we look forward to uh, collaborating with you on the stage at the Pat Patricia Reeser uh, Center for the Arts in January on the 26th. For more information on that concert, you can go to our website, 45thparallelpdx.org. And thank you all for a most wonderful morning uh, from Mendelssohn's Classic Music Pub in Portland, Oregon. Thanks, everybody. On this week's episode, we heard Matthew Zapruder, poet and author of the memoir, Story of a Poem, in conversation with Oregon Symphony Creative Chair Gabriel Kahane. The event was recorded in front of a live audience at the 1905 in Portland, Oregon on November 5th as part of the Portland Book Festival Cover to Cover program. The next open music program is on January 16th, 2024 at the Alberta Rose Theater with Conrad Tao. Open music will feature pianist Timo Andres in February and violinist Gabriella Smith in June. More info at orsymphony.org. Thank you to Gabriel Kahane, Clement So, and Steve Winnig at the Oregon Symphony for your partnership. We also heard a conversation with the New Yorker critic and author of The Rest is Noise, Alex Ross, with Ron Blessinger, Sergio Carreno, Bora Yoon, James Shields, and Lisa Lipton of the group 45th Parallel. Thank you also to audio engineer Brannick Howard. You can hear Alex Ross live in person with 45th Parallel and All Classical Portland at the Research Center for the Arts in Beaverton on January 26, 2024. More info at 45thparallelpdx.org. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Liguori and Matthew Workman for radio and podcast with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Jyoti Roy and Hope Levy, and to the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thank you also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thank you to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.